Remember, freedom is a gift from God. Choose to accept it, guard it, nourish it, share it with your loved ones. Don't let anyone take it from you. Choose to be free. Learn how to choose freedom with your host, Dr. Baruch Platner. Welcome to the show, my friends. I want to talk to you today about uh, an event that took place on October 19th, 1781, in Yorktown, Virginia. On that date, and at that time, uh, Charles Cornwallis, who was the commander-in-chief of all the armed forces of the British Empire in North America, surrendered to George Washington. And this was, of course, the end of a long campaign in which uh, there were ups and downs for both sides. But in the end, uh, George Washington, who understood very well how the British army operated and was supplied because he was a kind of a non-commissioned officer for them during the French and Indian Wars, basically managed to outmaneuver and exhaust the British forces. And the French, who very much resented being on the losing side of the French and Indian Wars and on the losing side of the decisive battle for the part of North America we today know of as Canada, well, the French Navy kind of helped harass uh, the English Navy, which was resupplying the English troops on American soil. So while the British had substantially um, naval supremacy, that supremacy was not absolute. In other words, the French were able to here and there, locally, strategically, to prevent the British from delivering supplies and so on. And um, people don't realize it because Americans tend to say that uh, the American um, patriots defeated the greatest uh, army that uh, existed in the world at that time. That's not true. Not to take anything away from the amazing accomplishment of George Washington and the American patriots, But the Brits never had a very powerful land army. Powerful land armies were wielded at that time by um, land countries like Russia, the Ottoman Empire, uh, France, at least on European soil, and um, uh, countries, uh, even Sweden, actually, at that time still. It's coming to the end, but, but still. Poland, even. Uh, but, Britain, but Britain, not being a large country and being an island, which was rather difficult to invade, never really invested much in its uh, land forces and didn't have the personnel to put in them. Uh, it invested all that it could in its navy and in the marine forces that it could deliver with the navy. So kind of um, infantry um, or light infantry. The British did have cavalry, but they had a problem delivering enough horses and supplies for cavalry um, to the Americas, and the Americans did not want to sell them horses uh, during the war. So um, knowing that their supply 
uh, chains were stretched and they uh, didn't have enough personnel. By the way, um, George III petitioned the, the Russian Empress at the time, Catherine the Great, uh, for um, some land troops, you know, to, to kind of mercenaries to reinforce his armed forces in the Americas, and she refused. But that just goes to tell you that the Brits were short of manpower on the ground. Anyway, George Washington managed eventually to kind of outmaneuver Lord Cornwallis, trap him between the land and the sea at Yorktown, and as it happened, there were some French ships offshore that provided uh, some gunfire from uh, from the sea and uh, as well cannon fire as well as uh, prevented British ships from coming to, 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 to kind of rescue him and reinforce him. So he had to surrender or substantially be captured. And he sent his saber via an underling, you know, um, a peon to George Washington because he never wanted to be seen as George Washington's equal. And the reason that I'm mentioning all of this today was that, for me at least, that was the day that the United States of America truly and really was born. Of course, on the 4th of July, 1776, so a good uh, five years earlier, even five years and a couple months earlier, the United States declared its intention to be independent from its mother country of Great Britain. But um, that intention would have been, uh, would have amounted to nothing had George Washington not been able to win against Britain, uh, the Revolutionary War. And it would have been, uh, that, that baby would have been aborted before it could even be born. But with the defeat of Cornwallis uh, and that symbolic act of delivering to George Washington Cornwallis's ornate, I imagine, saber, um, America was truly born. And it was born in an act, you could say, of chivalry. I mean, this act of surrendering your sidearm is a very European act that dates back to the Middle Ages. It dates back to the age of chivalry, when, you know, knights fought uh, duels and, uh, you know, there was jousting. And uh, the losing party, rather than, uh, you know, be slaughtered or killed, would offer his weapon, his sword. But you have to remember that for a knight like that, his sword was not only his most valuable possession because good swords were extremely sought after, expensive and difficult to come by. Quite in Europe, at the, in the Middle Ages, um, uh, metallurgy and sword making was not as developed as in places, let's say, like Japan and Damascus in Syria. And so quite often these blades made their way to Europe from uh, far away places. That's why it's called Damascus steel and so on. And then they were put in um, scabbards and handles were added and so on, stuff like that in, in Europe. And, and um, a blade like that was of tremendous value. And it was also symbolically and spiritually a very large part of the warrior's kind of self-image, self-esteem. 
So the surrender of this weapon uh, in the Middle Ages was a true act of, of, of surrender. It was, it was laying yourself bare. It was, to a large degree, shameful, but also chivalrous. It was an acknowledgement of defeat and yet a desire to perhaps live to fight another day, a desire that was uh, the right of the victor to grant or not to grant. In other words, the winning party had the choice of not accepting this surrender as such and simply killing his opponent. And in a very true sense, George Washington had that option available to him. I mean, he could have physically uh, imprisoned or eliminated all of uh, Cornwallis's forces and imprisoned or killed Cornwallis himself. He could have done that. But he didn't. When Cornwallis surrendered, he let him and his troops live in peace. Though, and I think also with their weapons, excepting the ceremonial saber that Cornwallis sent him. And that was an act of um, munificence by Washington, but that was enacted within this framework of chivalry. Now, why did Washington choose to do that? Why didn't he, I mean, um, imprison Cornwallis and brought him in chains to, you know, to the Congress in Philadelphia? or paraded him down the streets of Boston and New York. The reason is that Cornwallis and Washington had a lot in common. Both of them were white British people. In other words, they shared uh, their genes. To a very large degree, and until quite recently, they shared their nationality because both Cornwallis and Washington would have thought of themselves as British, as Englishmen. Now, I know that Washington joined the cause of uh, rebellion against Britain, but as, as, as all of the other um, revolutionary leaders, he, uh, or patriots, as they would be called, uh, it was rather reluctant. In other words, if King George III had offered Americans a seat on or in the British Parliament on the River Thames. In other words, if George, if George III said, well, you know, you guys are important part of our country and just as we have uh, representative in, representatives in Parliament from, you know, Dorchester and Boston, the Boston that's in England and, you know, other parts of the country, then why don't we have representatives from Massachusetts and New Hampshire and Rhode Island and Georgia? and Virginia, and you elect them and send them overseas, you know, to us, and they will send in our, they will sit in our parliament, just like every other uh, member of parliament, and represent your interests. Had George III made that offer, there's no doubt that the Americans would have accepted it. But George III didn't. In other words, the British view, viewed the colonials as kind of inferior to them and never would have dreamt of inviting their representatives to sit in their parliament there on the River Thames, the, in that building that still very much stands today and still hosts the British parliament. 
Well, the Americans, you know, they, 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 they weren't happy with that. They wanted representation, so they split. But they still viewed themselves very much as Englishmen, really up to that point where they decided that they would go their own way. Both Washington and Cornwallis were steeped in that European tradition of the Enlightenment, which had its roots in the post-Roman Empire uh, European chivalry, in, in you, could, you could say romance. You know, don't forget that Britain, though being a kind of a Germanic country, had a strong influence by the Normans who were Frenchified Vikings that invaded it in the 11th century. So they very much belong to that romantic, uh, chivalrous tradition, European tradition. They, were, they also shared the religion. Both of them were Anglicans. Later in the U.S. it would be renamed Episcopalians. And they both shared a very a view of the world in which they, in other words, British English men, were far superior to every other human being. They saw themselves as being superior not only to what today would be called ethnic minorities and other races like African uh, people of African descent or, or Native Americans. They saw themselves as superior to French people or, and uh, various Italians, Spaniards, you name it, Russians. They saw themselves as superior to pretty much everybody except the ruling British classes from which they sprung, especially Cornwallis. So, this, so these two men, even though Cornwallis saw in Washington an upstart, somebody who was reaching way above his position, and he saw, you know, and, and, and wanted very much to put him in his place and, if possible, hang him for treason, nevertheless, these two guys, these two middle-aged men, shared far, far more than they did not share. There was far, far, far more that united them and brought them together than uh, was different between them. And so uh, when they came into this situation where Washington, through the vagaries of war, through circumstances and through wits, became uh, the winner, they played out substantially the roles that were given to them by the traditions of European chivalry. And thus, the United States was born, truly born, in this act of, in an honorable act, in an honorable way. Uh, it was very similar to a rebellious son whom the parents really want, or the father especially, really wants to bring to heel and strongly feels that the son is nowhere near ready to strike out on his own, and yet the son, begging to disagree, uh, does his own thing, and uh, the father fights him, but in the end, whatever the son is doing, he proves himself to have been successful, and the father, albeit very reluctantly, bestows upon that son his blessing. And that sword, that physical object that departed from Cornwallis's encampment and uh, arrived at George Washington's encampment was a symbol of that 
baton of that symbol of power that was being transferred from Great Britain to America. And it was a symbol very much of one British empire, which at that time was its uh, apogee at its absolute highest point, delivering the, the baton to its successor, substantially the next English empire or the next British empire, which would be known as the United States of America. And as Britain from that point on uh, reached a plateau of power and then started kind of sliding down that plateau, America in time built up its might so that when the 20th century rolled around, uh, England substantially stepped aside, um, finally at the end of the Second World War, from its role as one of the leading world empires or world powers, I guess you could say, to be fully replaced by its progeny, its direct descendant, the recipient of that saber, the United States of America. So the United States, you could say, had very, very auspicious beginnings. But the end was different. On that, in the next segment. Well, my fellow Americans, we sure do love our convenient shopping options. But what happens after we buy? Are the products coming from China or overseas, thereby putting our fellow Americans out of business? Are the profits being sent to groups like Antifa, Black Lives Matter? Groups that intend to destroy the freedoms that we enjoy. Well, listen, I'm an avid consumer just like you are. But I've realized that we need to think before we buy. Shopping should be convenient and easy, sure, but we need to be able to follow the money. Well, shoptotheright.com. It's brand new. It's a new shopping platform featuring American companies with a focus on products that are made right here in America. Well, listen, this is a novel idea and one that I believe will start to become more popular and create a shopping revolution. ShopToTheRight.com Welcome back to the show, my friends. We, in the previous segment, we kind of um, scanned or maybe pinpointed the exact date on which America was born. October 19th of 1781, when Cornwallis surrendered his saber to George Washington at Yorktown, Virginia. Five years and a couple of months after the United States declared its intent to become independent, it actually won this independence through a hard, arduous, and uh, often seemingly hopeless battle. And it was born. It was off to the races. The, the United Kingdom basically said, okay, guys, you know, we don't love it, but you're on your own. Go for it. And then, of course, there was the War of 1812, which was the last time that America and the British Empire fought each other. But the, the seminal moment was the passing of that saber at Yorktown. Now, interestingly enough, you know, all beginnings and all ends in history are processes. It's not always easy to 
pinpoint the exact date because, you know, even the American independence was also a process that started maybe in the 1750s and 60s and, and accelerated through the 1770s. And the American demise... Uh, is another process that started as early uh, as the Eisenhower administration or the end thereof, at which point America was at the absolute peak of its power. And then soon came the 60s with the civil rights movement and the sexual revolution, which uh, jointly spelled uh, America's doom. So we're dealing with processes, but uh, in science... No real change can happen gradually. Gradually, we, o- we only have these asymptotes. In other words, we approach but never reach the, uh, the, 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 the change of the pendulum, the, 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 the change, the fulcrum point. To go through that, we need a singularity. We need a step function. We need a kind of a, quote-unquote, sharp event a discontinuity, as we say in mathematics. You know, continuous functions are infinitely derivable. You can always find the slope, the gradient. But then there comes a point in time, the rate of change. But then there comes a point of time when the rate of change becomes infinite. Something slips and lets go. And this infinite rate of change, it's the definition of singularity. And that's what happened in Yorktown in 1781. And then again, when America was born, and it happened again on January the 8th, 2021, when America died and substantially was killed. And I'll tell you why I choose that that particular date. Because, as I mentioned before, the American demise has been rather uh, prolonged. It was it's going on for at least 60, maybe 70 years. But the reason I choose this uh, January 8th date for the date that, uh, that America officially ceased to be is because on that day, on January the 8th, 2021, not, not long ago at all, a guy by the name of Jack Dorsey, who happens to be the founder and CEO of a microblogging platform called Twitter, <clears throat> he was sitting, you know, in billionaire fashion on a private island in, the, in French Polynesia, so right around the equator, many thousands of miles away from Yorktown, Virginia, uh, in, on an island that was that is private, but falls under the kind of legal jurisdiction of France, interestingly enough, because France helped the cause of American patriots in 1781. Um, But anyway, this guy was sitting there with his shaggy beard and probably flip-flops and uh, shorts. And uh, if he even had a shirt, it was probably one of those Hawaiian ones, or at least that's how I imagine it. But anyway, he was, quote-unquote, working remotely from this uh, private island in French Polynesia. And his minions over in, uh, you know, San Francisco, Twitter headquarters, 
they were running around, I imagine, making all kinds of um, uh, projections and calculations to present to Dorsey about what would happen if he chose to permanently and absolutely ban President Trump from his platform, Twitter. Now, um, the other social uh, media uh, guys like uh, Zuckerberg at Facebook, Instagram, whatever, they already banned Trump. But as we all know, because of its kind of um, nature in this microblogging platform that's amenable to writing short, punchy messages, uh, Trump uh, used Twitter very much to his advantage uh, in the in, in during his election campaign in 2015-16, and then uh, his uh, second uh, disastrous election campaign in 2020, and uh, after the election uh, to express his opinions about how the election uh, came down or went down. And Trump uh, had uh, I don't know 80 million followers or so on Twitter one of, by far, one of the biggest accounts. Not only that, but other heads of states, for example, notably Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, and uh, you, you name them, from Khamenei to Emmanuel Macron to, to uh, not Vladimir Putin, <laughs> but uh, quite a few of them are using Twitter directly to, the, to address not only their people, their own people, their constituents, but also uh, kind of the court of worldwide public opinion as well, and to promote and promulgate their point of view directly without going through the traditional medium of uh, the various uh, TV shows, newspapers, and so on. So the decision to ban Trump had certainly many aspects to it uh, that had to do with uh, uh, financial projections and, you know, Twitter lost uh, its shares, lost at least temporarily some value, uh, however many percent, five, six percent, and that, that, that is billions of dollars, at least on paper and so on. So all of that was presented to Mr. Dorsey there in, in, on his, in his fancy resort or private uh, villa or wherever he was staying on that island. Uh, and probably sitting by the poolside or on the veranda, he was looking at his uh, tablet and reading all of that. And and he was having fun, right? And what is it? I don't know, 12,000 miles away from him, let's say, there was this other guy, President Trump. And President Trump is the direct political descendant of George Washington. In other words, between George Washington, the first president, and uh, Donald Trump, the 45th president, there were 43 other presidents. And so politically, let's say, uh, Donald Trump is the great, 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 and so on, grandson of George Washington. But even beyond that, uh, uh, Washington and Trump probably share quite a, quite a few genes, right? Because Trump is 
part Scottish and part German, and uh, so was Washington. <laughs> because England was populated by Anglo-Saxons, or Angles and Saxons, uh, who are people from Northern, Ger Northern Germany. So, and here was a guy, Trump, who was in charge of the world's most powerful military, who is never far away from the famous football from which he can launch a, a nuclear strike anywhere, on the anywhere in the world, including the private island in, the French, in French Polynesia where Dorsey was sitting. Trump was in the White House, which is by far the world's most sophisticated command and control center, sitting atop um, a $700 billion a year military uh, complex and having at his disposal supposedly all these means of destruction beginning at pinpoint strikes by the likes of SEAL teams and ending with ICBMs that can wipe out whole cities the size of, the size of Beijing. And on the other side of the world, there was a guy, in, oh, and I should say, you know, Trump was definitely wearing a suit and tie. <laughs> or, uh, and on the other side of the world, right, on some veranda on a, in a French island surrounded by luxury that few of us, if any, can imagine, there was this guy who legally could execute only for one company and not even one of the biggest ones in the world, i.e. Twitter, whom nobody, uh, nobody elected to any post uh, in his entire life, who had at his disposal no armies, no weaponry, nothing, and his entire command post, if you want to call it that, uh, uh, contained an internet connection and some sort of electronics device like an iPad. Yeah. And with that, Mr. Dorsey killed Mr. Trump. I mean, you, you know, I'm not saying directly, of course, but euphoristically speaking. Right? So, Mr. Trump, President Trump, representing the United States of America, sitting on top of all that enormous power, was utterly impotent, could do absolutely nothing, while this other guy whom nobody elected to anything, you know, Trump was elected in 2016, I believe he got, what, 70 million uh, votes or some such, right? And then... Who knows really how many he got in 2020, but, uh, but at least 70 officially, they're saying, what, 78 or something? Well, not one single person voted for Dorsey. And yet, with the push of a virtual button on his iPad screen, Dorsey killed President Trump and with him, the United States of America. That day, that moment, when Dorsey hit that enter key and Trump's 
Twitter account with his 80 million followers was poof, gone into thin air, disappeared. That was the moment that America died. Because what became absolutely clear in America, or, or clear not only in America, but to the world, to anyone who's watching with open eyes, what became clear at that moment that the American people had zero say in how their country was run. That the president of the United States was impotent. He had no power. You know, people talk about, people assign the presidency all kinds of, um, you know, titles. They say the president is um, the most powerful man in the world, or that's often said, or the leader of the Western world. Well, um, what Mr. Dorsey proved, that that was a joke. Trump, supposedly the leader of the free world, the most powerful man in the world, was, was, was not powerful enough to prevent some guy who most Americans actually never heard of, and certainly most people in the world have never heard of, from deplatforming him, from stopping him from communicating with his people, right? depriving him of substantially any means of talking to the majority of American people. And there was not a damn thing that Trump could do about it. If Trump, Trump could sign a pile of executive orders, you know, nationalizing Twitter, he, or he could pick up the phone and call Special Forces Command and get a SEAL team dispatched to this island and grab Dorsey and fly him up 30,000 foot in the air and push him out into the South Pacific. He could have done all of that and the only result from him doing so would have been him carried out in a straight jacket from the Oval Office straight to the closed psychiatric department at Walter Reed Hospital. So you tell me who is more powerful. You tell, you tell me who has the real power. Because it seems to me like it certainly isn't the President of the United States. And you can say, well, that's just because it was Trump. And you know, Biden, oh, he's, he, he has all this power, right? Biden is indeed the most powerful man in the world. That's nonsense, my friends. Biden will do and is already doing the bidding of globalist progressives of whom Dorsey is one of the leaders. In other words, Today, as we speak, Dorsey and Zuckerberg and Bezos and Gates are far more powerful than Biden and Harris. Okay, Biden and Harris are just pawns. They are the front. They have no power. There is no decision that they can make at all that would be at odds with what the progressive 
globalist elites want. Now, you could say, well, why would they want to make such a decision? I don't know. But, you know, theoretically, Biden or Harris could decide to do something that the likes of Dorsey wouldn't love. Theoretically, I'm saying. Now, of course, Biden and uh, Harris were put in the White House by the globalist elites precisely because they would never even attempt to make such a decision. And that is why Trump was kicked out, because he routinely did that. Did that. More on this in the next segment. Fellow Americans, you've watched for decades as radical Marxists have systematically taken over some of our nation's most cherished institutions. And like us, we're pretty sure you're not happy about any of it. But this is the America we now find ourselves in. AmericaOutloud.com is fighting back with one of the fastest growing conservative media networks in the world featuring some of the nation's most influential experts and commentators. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older, until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to the show, my friends. So, you know, in the last segment, I mean, I know it sounds a little uh, wacky, but that's the point. That's the point. The last segment, we covered how a guy with a, with a scraggly beard sitting on a luxurious private island in French Polynesia in his tank top and shorts and flip-flops, most likely, killed President Trump, showed how the American presidency was devoid of any power, and with it killed the idea of America, killed the idea that Americans, the people, are somehow in control of their government. I mean, let's remember what was the point, and substantially the only point, of the American Revolution leading to the day that America was really born on October 19th, 1781, when Washington accepted the saber that Cornwallis sent him at Yorktown, Virginia. The idea behind all of that was only the the, the power of the American people to determine their own future. That's it. And as I mentioned previously, 
the American people, had they been offered a seat at the table in Britain, in other words, had Massachusetts and Virginia and so on been, been offered to send representatives to the, to the British Parliament and become substantially uh, members of Parliament, just like members of Parliament from various parts of London and England, if they uh, were offered that, they would have taken it gladly because it would allowed them it would have allowed them to have some measure of control over their own lives but that was a non-starter as far as the british were concerned so the americans said well in that case we'll have to part ways so that we can govern ourselves and have a, a say in how we are governed and they won that right with that revolutionary war that ended on October 1781. Well, what was so obviously demonstrated on January the 8th, 2021, when Dorsey nuked Trump's Twitter account, was that American people were absolutely no longer in control of their own destiny. Not even a little bit. You know, America is split between people who, let's say, support President Trump and whose agenda is at odds, sometimes substantially, sometimes less substantially, with the agenda of the globalist progressive elites. On issues like uh, climate, on issues like immigration, on issues like America's participation in various uh, global policing actions. You know, people who support President Trump, that half of America, prefers that there be little, if any, immigration, prefers that America is energy independent and that fossil fuels be, uh, are cheap and abundant. And it prefers that America does not engage itself in various conflicts around the world in support of progressive globalist causes. Well, then there is the other half of America whose views are perhaps more aligned with those of the progressive globalist elites. In other words, they believe in the climate hoax, so they're willing to pay higher, much higher prices for energy. They uh, uh, don't believe in borders, and so they're ready to welcome uh, anybody and everybody from around the world and make them immediately American citizens. And I'm not sure, but perhaps they're even willing to send other people's sons and daughters to fight various uh, battles and mini wars and engagements in places like Syria. But it doesn't matter, really, what the situation is today. Today, this part of America thinks one way, another part of America thinks the other way. My point is that it doesn't matter at all what Americans think, whether they're on this side or that side, because America is no longer governed by its own people. It's governed by the progressive globalist elites who have a certain, how um, say, General staff, perhaps, is a good expression as any, of people the likes of Dorsey, Gates, Zuckerberg, Bezos, 
uh, some, some shadowy financiers, uh, Soros comes to mind, and maybe some high-level bureaucrats at the European Union in Brussels. Those are the people that run America. And more often than, than not, like in the case of Dorsey, which is what makes it so hilarious, they don't even run it from, from America. I mean, in other words, from American territories. America is governed not from Washington, D.C., that's for sure. America is governed from various private islands along the equator. Right? So, I mean, that's what happens. So, since America is no longer self-governed, it's not the same country. That country died. It's been dying for a while, but this uh, new king of Trump's uh, Twitter account by Dorsey with this push of a button from French Polynesia is so symbolic. You know, this country that was born, you know, to the sight and sound of the rocket's red glare over Fort Sumter. You know, with the old glory waving there and, and all of that like in the anthem, in that poem. A country that was born from a people and by a people who were brave, skilled, self-sufficient, fair, chivalrous even, sure of themselves, of their nationality, of their, of their genetic origins, of their religion of their relationship with the Almighty and with each other. This country was killed by a guy who, sure, he, Dorsey has an American passport. I don't think it means anything to him. God only knows how many other passports he has, and if he wanted to, he could buy one tomorrow. I mean... I'm not sure what the going price is, let's say, for a Swiss passport, but I'm sure that it's something that Dorsey could spend out of his pocket change, maybe a couple million. Eh? I mean, Dorsey could buy any passport in the world within the next 20 minutes. So, we have a situation here where America is no longer. The name is there. There is some pretense that there is still the Senate, the Congress, the this, the that, the other thing. It's all a sham. So what does it mean to regular folks? You know, you and, you and, you and me. I would say that what will happen now, or has been happening for a while, but now with Biden, you know, Trump with all his faults, was able to put some sort of a break, not much, but some, on the globalist progressive agenda. Left the Paris Accords, slowed down immigration, that, this, the other thing. Disengaged America from its policing actions around the world, or at least somewhat. He wasn't able to do much because when Trump occupied the Oval Office, the American presidency was already substantially powerless but he was able to do something. Which is why they nuked him and got him out of there. Not only from Twitter, but they got him out of the Oval Office. 
Biden, of course, the whole point of him and Harris was that they're going to sign off on everything. Actually, Biden has already signed off on, you know, a gazillion executive orders that the globalists, progressive Bolsheviks, neo-Nazis, whatever name you want to call them, put in front of him. We all know that he, that he has no idea what he's signing, but he signed. It makes it easier for them. They don't have to work so hard. They can go straight through the Oval Office. But what does it mean to the rest of us? Well, I believe that there are going to be three categories of people going forward. There already are, and it's going to be more and more so. There's going to be the elites, the people whom the elites find useful, and the rest. And in my opinion, uh, you want to be in a couple of different places. You have, se- you have certain choices that you can make. If you're young enough or for your children, you may want to try and join the elites. You can do so by acquiring professional degrees, for example, law, medicine, maybe some science engineering, and practicing them at the highest levels. The next choice is to become useful to the elites. The people who are useful to the elites are people who work for the government, military, police, firefighters, teachers, and then the professions, lawyers, doctors, engineers, who, who work at the kind of the more, uh, the low average to average minus levels of their profession. Another choice that you can make is to kind of avoid the elites. And by that I mean, you know, choosing to live in small places, rural communities, uh, maybe in states like Wyoming and Alaska, and the Dakotas, far away from any major urban centers, close to farms where you can procure directly from the farmers uh, your food items, so chickens, eggs, pigs, cows, milk. Maybe you can grow your own vegetables or buy them from the next guy who grows them, so that your kind of interface or, or interconnectivity with the rest of the world is reduced to a minimum. I think that's a very good choice for many people, especially older people towards the end of their careers or retirees. It's a low-cost way of living. It's a wonderful, healthy way of living. What, in my opinion, you don't, you don't want to be is the mass of humanity which is neither the elites nor useful to the elites but just your typical 40, 50 grand a year, 60 grand a year, whatever, cubicle dweller living in a big city, perhaps in a small rented apartment or even in a townhouse or a little suburban home mortgaged to the hilt with close to zero net worth, with everything on payments, 
with the credit cards always maxed out, with uh, little equity in your home, little equity in your cars, little equity in anything. Those guys, my friends, are going to be royally screwed. I mean, they are already and it's going to accelerate. They're going to be no, no better in any way than the chattel slaves of, you know, before the Civil War. In many ways, they'll be worse because the progressive government is going to perform all kinds of lab rat experiments on them, feeding them, you know, grasshopper hamburgers and mealworm sausages, convincing them that they need to stop eating everything that's good for you, like eggs, butter, and meat, and, and convincing them that they don't really need to go and to go anywhere because it's dangerous outside. So God forbid they don't <laughs> put any any more uh, CO2 out in the air. I mean, pretty soon they're going to tell them to stop breathing. The, ex the, the lives of these people, of these units of consumption are going to become sheer hell. Don't be in that category. You will always be at the complete and utter uh, mercy of the elites. And most people are already. If you're sitting on a big mortgage, ask yourself what would happen. Do, I, would, I would recommend to you do this exercise. If you have a variable rate, you know, what's called ARM, adjustable rate mortgage, go through the exercise of how your monthly payments would uh, change with every 50 basis points increase in interest rates. And you can figure out just how much of interest rate hike you can afford. Because believe me, interest rates are not going to stay zero or close to zero for much longer. Same thing with your cars. Uh, usually car loans are not adjustable rate, but here in Canada, for example, they are. Look at your debt load. Look at how much of your budget is spent on food. Are you renting? Is your rent somehow regulated, protected? Well, all of that is nonsense. It can be unprotected. Will you be able to afford your place if things change? It's very important in the world that's coming because we're, we're entering into a, a new bipolar world in which the Western globalist superpower comprising of the US and Western Europe is going to be competing with the Eastern globalist superpower, uh, substantially China. And they're going to be competing for everything and trying to influence various what used to be called third world countries which still maintain some sort of nationalist underpinnings russia for example other eastern european countries uh, countries in south america like argentina brazil and so on that's the world we're living in today the united states is only a part of this 
Western globalist empire. And uh, believe me, the powers that be in the Western globalist empire are going to be very aggressive about using the United States military, for example, to fight their wars, not America's wars, but their wars in little hot zones around the world where they will compete by proxy with China and potentially Russia. Right, so that's what's going to be happening. That's Syria, that's the South China Sea, that's the whole Taiwan thing, those types of things. So be prepared for America to be very much a part of that. What's important here, folks, that you choose to be free. Do not choose to be slaves to the elites. See you next time.